Before we talk about drugs, let's talk about things that enhance and protect against the formation of ulcers. Things that protect against ulcers include stomach mucus. Mm. Now, what is it that causes mucus to be released in the first place or secreted? It's a specific molecule, and we talked about it in Pathopharm 1. And we give a drug that blocks it, and it causes a side effect of lowered stomach lining. What well, is goblet cells, or is it? But why do they get released? What tells those goblet cells to secrete it? It starts with a P. Prostaglandins. Prostaglandins. Yeah. So, what drug do we have that inhibits prostaglandins? COX-1 and 2 inhibitors, and those are called NSAIDs, which is why NSAIDs can cause ulcers. So, the mucus is secreted by goblet cells under the direction of prostaglandins. If we give a drug that blocks prostaglandins, that can cause lower mucus, which can cause ulcers. The next one is bicarbonate. Your body secretes bicarbonate into the intestines, which help lower the acidity, or raise the acidity, no, lower the, raise the pH, lowering the acidity. There you go. <clears throat> if you don't have enough bicarbonate being produced, that can cause problems. Blood flow. If you don't have enough blood flow to the gut, it will necrose and give you ulcers. Um, what promotes blood flow to the GI tract? Which part of the nervous system? Actually, it's a, tr it's a trick question. The parasympathetic does not direct blood flow. But lack of epinephrine and norepinephrine, so it's a relaxation of the sympathetic side that causes increased blood flow. So, after you eat, you should be relaxed, man. Yeah, let's take naps. Or go for a walk, that's fine too. And then prostaglandins are what cause mucus to be secreted. Now, on the uh, causing ulcer side, we have... H. pylori eats through the mucus then we and causes inflammation. Then we have NSAIDs, which inhibit mucus secretion. We have gastric acid and pepsin, which will digest the stomach if they get a chance. And what prevents them from doing that? Mucus. And then we have smoking. Smoking does not cause ulcers, but it enhances ulcer production by causing irritation to the stomach. Can I ask you something about H. pylori? Is it, does it flourish in the low and high acidic yeah. environments? Yeah. Yes, H. pylori uh, lives best in high acidic environments, which is one of the reasons why for years doctors thought he was crazy. They're like, there's no bacteria that could just live in that stuff. All right, overview of drug choices. We have antibacterials, which are going to be trying to kill what bacteria? H. pylori. We have anti-secretory agents. What these are doing is inhibiting the secretion of acid. There's two kinds, H2 blockers and proton pump inhibitors, or PPIs. Then we have mucosal protectants. These try and protect the stomach. Those are sucralfate and mesoprostol. And then finally, we have antacids, whose job is to neutralize acid.
hey, look, H. pylori test. Oh. Yeah, you could have used that earlier, huh? Uh, antibiotics. Um, we've got bismuth, clarithromycin. What kind of drug is that? Macrolide. Amoxicillin, which is a broad-spectrum penicillin. Tetracycline, which is a tetracycline. And metronidazole. No, it's its own thing. Because what you're thinking of is the conazole antifungals, which are different. Metronidazole is also called flagell, and we use it for vancomycin. We use it for um, C. diff. We use it for um, rosacea, and we also use it for bacterial vaginosis, among other things. So we can also use it for H. pylori. Probably the most common ones you're going to see are bismuth and clarithromycin. All right, H2 blockers. The H stands for histamine. Now, most of the histamine that we're used to thinking of is the stuff that makes you swell up and itchy. That's, those are caused by H1, histamine 1 receptors. In your stomach, we have a different kind of histamine receptor called histamine 2 or H2. When you, when you uh, stimulate H2, it causes stomach acid to be secreted. So if we block it, you will have less secretion of stomach acid. So there are four drugs, and they all end in tadine, cimetidine, ranitidine, nizatidine, and famotidine. You may know these more commonly as Tagamet, Zantac, Pepsid, and Axid. I'm sure Axid. Never heard of it. You can buy it over the counter, though. Every single one of these is available over the counter. And I'm sure that every one of you has at least heard of one of those drug names. They have Pepsid and Zantac commercials on television. Now, the mechanism of action, we talked about that. We talked about that. What we use them for? We use them for gastric acid and duodenal ulcers. We use them to treat GERD. We also use them for something called Zollinger-Ellison syndrome. Now, this is basically a cancer that produces gastrin. And gastrin is one of the uh, hormones that tells your stomach, get ready to eat. So, have you ever smelled some food and you're like, mm, that tastes, that smells good. What happens to your mouth? Starts watering. Well, your stomach does the same thing. It starts preparing to eat just from that smell. And gastrin is one of the things responsible for that. So, if you have one of these tumors, you secrete acid when you shouldn't. So, we can use it to treat that. Um, probably. <laughs> I don't know. And then we can also use it for dyspepsia, which is a... What is dyspepsia? That was one of your uh, vocabulary words. Nope. Not difficulty eating. Indigestion. So just, you know, when you eat something and you're like, af like you go to the cafeteria, and then afterwards you're just like, man, I just don't feel so good. What did I eat? Oh my gosh. Ugh. That's dyspepsia. Now, out of the, um, they can all be given um, PO, and 
All of them accept Nizatidine can also be given IV. So they can all four be given PO. But Nizatidine is the only one that cannot be given IV. In the hospital, usually the most common one is Pepsid or Famotidine. Now, um, there's an additional use that's not on this slide that you need to know about because it's not an official use. In the hospital, almost every patient is going to be on Pepsid, almost all of them. And it has nothing to do with actual heartburn or ulcers. It has to do with, say it again, preventing aspiration. So if a patient aspirates in the hospital, the hospital is on the hook to treat them for aspiration pneumonia. So they put almost everyone on Pepsid to help reduce secretions of stomach acid, which reduces the risk for aspiration. So if you see a patient who's got no history of GERD, no history of ulcers, what should you be thinking? Aspiration. So just something to think about. I don't know. All right. Metabolism. Now, cimetidine or tagamet was the very first one of these drugs we had. It's a nasty drug in that it has a lot of side effects and a lot of interactions. The rest of them have very few side effects and very few interactions. So when we talk about these side effects and adverse effects, these are all tagamet. So um, tagamet is metabolized by the liver and interacts with some other drugs metabolized by the liver. The most important ones being warfarin, phenytoin, which is dilantin, and theophylline and lidocaine. Um, those are all, well, phenytoin, theophylline, and lidocaine are all affect the heart, and so they're kind of dangerous to be giving alongside um, cimetidine. The next one is adverse effects. Again, tagmet's the only one. It's got antiandrogenic side effects, which means against, against men, meaning pro-women, like gynecomastia, impotence, and decreased libido. Some of you are going, hmm, maybe I'll give this to my husband. <laughs> can, also cause, can also cause central, central nervous system uh, symptoms like confusion, hallucinations, CNS depression, and excitation. So the moral of the story is just say no to Tagamet. All right, next. Next we have proton pump inhibitors. They all end in prazole. So we have omeprazole, lansoprazole, mebeprazole, tam pantoprazole, esomeprazole. And I, I think that's it. Now, the one that's bolded pantoprazole is on your must-know drug list. If I give you a question about PPIs on the test, and I will, it will be pantoprazole. Now, something else that you may need to know, omeprazole and esomeprazole are the same drug, except one is racemic. Huh? I know we've talked about racemic before. Um, how many of you have ever seen a picture of yourself and you're like, well, that doesn't look like me. When I look in the mirror, that's not what it looks like. Or if you looked in, a, you looked in one of those mirrors that does the, the right, instead of doing a mirror image, it's like the right way around. And you look at it and you're like, 
is this how people see me? Oh my gosh. Because when I look in the mirror, it looks really good. When I look in this thing, it's like weird. All right. Well, drugs have two, two possibilities. They have mirror images. Stereoisomers. That's like when we did the turkey in Pathopharm 1. So, esomeprazole is racemic, left and right hands. S-omeprazole is only the left hand. And it's also a higher dose. So, you know this one is Nexium, also known as the purple pill. Left hand only. S-omeprazole, S stands for the sinister, which is left. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay, omeprazole. You should know omeprazole or Prilosec because it's now generic and it's also now available over the counter. So if you get the Publix brand, it's the same stuff. Now, Okay, let's let me show you real quick like. Okay. So All right. That's one of them. Okay. Now. When you give omeprazole, you're giving both of these together. This one, the right hand, doesn't do anything biologically. So when you give esomeprazole, you're only giving the left side, which is the side that actually does stuff. And it's a higher dose. So what they've found is that esomeprazole works a little bit better. Some people think it's just because of the higher dose. Some people think it's the combination of the higher dose plus only being the left hand. No. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, so the, the question is, well, why do we have this racemic mixture where you have both sides? And the reason is because it's a lot more expensive to remove the right hand. Because these drugs are identical to each other. They look exactly the same. If you centrifuge them or other things, they're identical. So it's a more involved chemical process to remove them, and it's much more expensive. Well, what happens is that this right hand only causes side effects, but it doesn't help the body. Yes, right. So omeprazole is 20 milligrams. Now, if you assume that a racemic mixture is half and half, you only have 10 milligrams of the part that actually does something. Esomeprazole is 40 milligrams. So 10 mil and it's all the left side that actually works. So 10 versus 40, some people think that's the real difference between the drugs. Okay, now we got sidetracked. Let's go back. The mechanism of PPIs. They inhibit the hydronium potassium pump. What's a hydronium? It's a hydrogen that's missing Missing an electron. Another way of saying it is a hydrogen 
ion. Another way of saying it would be, what, what is a hydrogen made of anyway? One proton and one electron. So if you take away the electron, it is a proton. What do you call it when there's a bunch of protons or hydrogen ions in a solution? Acid. So when we inhibit the hydronium potassium pump, we're inhibiting the production of acid. Now, H2 blockers do not inhibit production of acid. What do they inhibit? The secretion of acid. So these are, these are attacking acid, but two different ways. H2 blockers prevent its secretion. PPIs prevent the production in the first place. So let me ask you this question. Does it help to give both at the same time? No. Yes. Yeah. Because it's not an absolute... It's not an absolute not, not produce any acid. It's just produce less acid. Now, they will all, um, all of them are irreversible, except for lansoprazole, which is reversible. Whatever that means. I wouldn't worry about it. I'm not going to ask you that question. Now, what we use them for. We use them for peptic ulcer disease, GERD, and prevention of ulcers with NSAIDs. So if you've got a patient who who has to be on an NSAID, but is at risk for ulcers, you can also give them a PPI. Um, the kinetics, all of them can be given PO, and uh, pantoprazole and lensoprazole can also be given IV. So that's, pantoprazole just seems to be the most common one in the hospitals because that's, kind of, I guess, that's the hospital contract because it can be given both PO and IV. Adverse effects, headaches, nausea, diarrhea, and possibly food poisoning. The possibly food poisoning is because you, don't, you have lowered acid, so if you're, if you're relying on your acid to kill bacteria, there's a slight chance you could get more food poisoning. But in the long run, it hasn't really seemed to turn out that much. Interactions, the only big interaction is rebeprazole, which interacts with digoxin. Say again? No. All right, sucralfate. We are in a whole nother ball game now. Sucralfate forms a gel, and that gel sticks to the ulcer and protects it from acid. Now, the problem with sucralfate is that um, it can cause constipation and in it can impede the absorption of several other drugs and can also interfere with something else. No, never mind, I'm thinking about something else. Yeah, so it can interfere with uh, absorption of drugs. Antacids make it not work as well. And there you go, it can cause constipation. So how does it work? Protective, product, protective gel, which protects the ulcer. Then we have mesoprostol. Mesoprostol is a type of prostaglandin. What causes mucus to be secreted? Prostaglandins. So basically what we're doing is we're giving a drug that will locally give off prostaglandins and tell the stomach to produce more mucus. Um, so it stimulates mucus production and it also reduces acid secretion and it also actually helps more blood flow go to the stomach. Now, some non-GI things that it will do. It also causes, um, they call it ripening of the cervix, and causes cervical 
contractions. So one of the other uses for uh, misoprostol is to induce a pregnancy termination. Now, that can be an abortion, or it can be in the case of sometimes the fetus dies, but for whatever reason, there's not actually a miscarriage, and so they have to induce a termination, or the mother could die. So we use it for that. In, in uh, someone who goes into labor, but their cervix isn't coming along properly, then they use it to ripen, as they call it, the cervix. Is that the appropriate use of these? Yes. Okay. Adverse effects, diarrhea, abdominal pain, and dysmenorrhea. What is dysmenorrhea? Painful period because you've got those extra contractions going on. Oh, there's one other use. After, after, a, after a woman gives birth, the uterus is this incredibly muscular organ that has just had this placenta lining it. What's the purpose of placenta? Nutrients for the baby. And in order to get nutrients, it has to have blood supply. So you've just torn away this giant blood net from this organ that's very muscular, and muscles are full of blood. So this, a woman, after she gives birth, is at extreme risk for hemorrhage. So after, she, after the, she's born, it tightens up into this little ball. So if any of your friends are pregnant or about to give birth, Afterwards, ask if you can feel their uterus. It's this tight little ball. Yes. And one of the things you will do as a nurse when you're in your labor and delivery rotation is you will palpate the fundus and make sure it feels tight. If it doesn't feel tight, if it feels soft, that patient is at risk for hemorrhage. And if it's soft, we will give them misoprostol to tighten it up. All right. See, it's so much fun, isn't it? All right. Next, we have antacids. Antacids neutralize acid. Um, so they're almost all alkaline or alkaline salts. Um, they can also stimulate prostaglandins, but that's not the primary way they work. We use them for peptic ulcer disease, indigestion, GERD, um, although it only, prevent, it only helps symptoms. It does not prevent... Barrett's esophagus. So it can make you feel better, but if you have esophagitis, it's not going to help the esophagitis. All right, adverse effects. Um, depends on the one. Some of them cause constipation, others cause diarrhea. Sometimes we put them together so they can cancel each other out. Um, sodium loading. Um, how do you spell relief? R-O-L-I-A-I-D-S. Rolades. Rolades. Um, What's the thing you put into the little thing and it fizzes up? Alka-Seltzer. Both of those, well, the originals were, were uh, sodium bicarbonate. There, there's different formulations, but they were, uh, sodium, they were sodium bicarbonate. So a patient can have sodium loading, get too much sodium. Check the renal function of any patient before giving them magnesium. And uh, they can inhibit the absorption of many drugs. Now, which drug do you need to think of as interacts with almost any antacid and never give them together? No. Nope. 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 
they, they do, but the one you really need to think of is phloxacins. Like Levo, phloxacin, and Cipro. Yeah. yeah. Whether it's calcium, magnesium, no matter which kind you get, it interacts with the phloxacins, the quinolones. There are others. I mean, like, if you give, if you give iron along with the magnesium hydroxide, that's going to bind to each other. But anyway. All right. The first antacid we'll talk about is magnesium hydroxide, better known as MOB. Milk of magnesia. It is a potent, which means it's really strong, really good at it, and it also lasts a long time. So that's good, too. But the big problem with it is it can cause diarrhea. In fact, it's often used as a laxative. You want to avoid it in patients who have bowel obstruction or surgery because that can cause a bowel rupture, perforation. And you want to check the renal status on patients before giving it to them. That's AL. Aluminum hydroxide, which is the next one. Aluminum hydroxide is weak and slow. But what's its side effect? causes constipation. So, sounds perfect to put them together. And in fact, Mylanta and Maalox both combine aluminum hydroxide and magnesium hydroxide. Next, we have calcium carbonate, which we have already talked about in what section? In osteoporosis. It is fast-acting and potent but there's the potential for rebound, which means the patient gets even worse acid after it wears off. It's also used as a calcium source and can, yeah, that's Tums, and can cause constipation. Um, can also form something called calcium dioxide gas, which can cause discomfort. Yeah. All right, and then this is really for next, next class, steel cut oatmeal. Because next class, we're going to talk about fiber among other things. And, uh, Are you bringing them? No, I'm not going to bring them for you. And oatmeal to me is just disgusting. I just, bleh, I cannot stand it. But steel cut oats are really good. So what's the difference between oatmeal and steel cut oats? Oats. Steel. All right, well, if you take, if you take the regular oat, and you cut them up with steel, they're called steel-cut oats. They're also called Irish-cut oats, or Irish oats. Then, if you take those steel-cut oats and you roll over them with the steamroller, you get what's called rolled oats, better known as oatmeal. That's the kind of Quaker oatmeal. And it just forms this mush. It's bleh. Anyway, so here's, here's the ingredient list. And what you're going to do is you're going to take your oats, put, them, put a little bit of butter in a pan, and then you're going to toast the oats until it smells kind of nutty. takes about a minute or two. Then you pour boiling water over it. And then stir it once, clamp on the lid, and uh, let it sit for 30 minutes on low. Then at the end of that 30 minutes, you're going to uncover it, pour a cup of milk into it, let it sit for 10 minutes, stirring occasionally. Put a little bit of salt or uh, whatever else you want on it, brown sugar. And that's way better than any oatmeal you'll ever have. And yes, it does take 30 minutes, but good things come to those who wait. Oh, boy. You should do it for the baby. 